0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. It's been said that the mind is a beautiful thing. And it is indeed. It is a wonderful thing. It is a... Amazing thing. The human brain weighs only three pounds, and yet in that little three pounds, contains over a hundred billion neurons. If you don't know what neurons are, neurons are these electrically excitable cells that process and transmit information by chemical signaling. In pregnancy, it's said that neurons multiply at the rate of two hundred and fifty thousand. Per minute. And of those 100 billion neurons, each neuron possesses 1,000 to 10,000 synapses, which connect the neurons to one another. The brain can process information at 286 miles per hour. I'm not sure how they measured that. But is there a sonic boom when that happens? I don't know. One-fifth of the body's blood supply goes to the brain to help it process the information, bring it the oxygen that it needs. You've heard it said that we only use 10% of our brain. Evidently, that's a lie. We've been lied to our whole lives. We use every part of our brain. We know what every part of our brain has a function for. The most mind-blowing fact I found, pun intended, is that the average brain, in the average brain, in your brain, if you're an adult, in an adult brain, there are 100,000 miles of blood vessels in one brain, which is enough to circle the earth four times. And yet each of them are precisely placed to bring the nutrients and oxygen that is needed To process information. The mind is a beautiful thing. One more statistic that I saw. Is that the average brain in a human day. Has 70,000 thoughts. 70,000 thoughts. On a given day. And each and every one of those thoughts. Is known by God. And is precious to God. When is the last time you thought about your thought life? Have you ever thought about your thought life? I mean, if we have 70,000 thoughts a day, it seems like it would be good to spend some of them to think about what we're thinking about, right? What do you spend your time thinking about? If you had a journal out all 70,000 of your thoughts, what would be in there? I'm guessing if you're like me, some of those would be very good things and noble things, and some of those would be very sinful and shameful things. 2 Corinthians 10 says that we must take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. That all 70,000 of our thoughts must be submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because our thought life has tremendous power on our spiritual life. Our thought life guides our actions and our emotions and our decisions. Our thought life even guides our worship. Our thought life is critical to our spiritual life. So, we must train our brain to think as Jesus thought, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so, today we're going to spend time thinking about our thinking. If you would please turn to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 8 through 9. If this is your first time here at Jacob's, will we just preach straight through the Bible? And so we're continuing on in our study in Philippians. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 981. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1455. Two weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 4, 4 through 7, and we saw this command, do not be anxious about anything. And we discovered the peace of God that is available to us. And we saw the path of peace, which comes through rejoicing in the Lord, who is a stable foundation. And through praying to the Lord, giving thanks to him and making supplications to him. But we also saw that as we gain this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that it proclaims to a watching world that the Lord is near. And that this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It guards them from being consumed by anxiety and fear and worry. Today, the Apostle Paul continues to. His thought process on peace. And he continues it by looking into our minds, looking into our thought process, and guiding us on what we should think on 70,000 times a day. So let's read together Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I think we can honestly say that so frequently we are too busy to think about what we're thinking about. And so, God, we come humbly today, Lord. Reveal to us the ways that we need to be transformed, the ways that our minds need to be renewed the ways that we can set our affections more upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has this great plan to redeem all things to himself. And part of that great and glorious plan of redemption is to redeem our thought life. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we renew our mind? What do we set our mind on, our thoughts on to be renewed? How do we live in a way that draws us into closer intimacy with God? Well, today, as we think about our thought life, we're going to look specifically at how we are to think about the culture that is around us, the creation that is around us. How are we to engage with music and movies? How are we to engage with philosophy and psychology In counseling? How are we to engage with all of the plurality? I mean, we live in this information age. How are we to engage with this bombardment of information? Well, today we're going to see how we should engage with that. And the instruction starts in verse 8. Let's read it again. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Paul is telling us to train our brains, to move our brains and set our minds on things that it may not naturally gravitate towards. Now, some of us might apply this verse by saying, okay, I need to take all of my non-Christian music and I need to take all my non-Christian DVDs and I need to throw them in the trash, But what's so interesting is this is not what Paul is saying. In fact, what's so fascinating about this list of virtues is that this list of virtues that Paul has here doesn't come from the Bible. He didn't take it from the Old Testament or from some other writing. He actually took this list of virtues from a pagan source. He took this list of virtues from Greek philosophy and Greek virtues. And not only that, but as we look through this list, he's very adamant to let us know that this expands beyond our knowledge and understanding and meditation on Scripture. He says, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, wherever it is found. If there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, not only in the Scriptures, but wherever you can find it in society, those things, think about Just to give you a quick example, we talked about how beautiful and majestic and amazing the human mind is. Nowhere in scripture will you find that there is a hundred thousand miles worth of veins in your brain. And yet that is a truth that we can take from this world. That we can comprehend and meditate on and think about. And it leads us to wander about the glory of our magnificent creator. It leads us to remember and to know that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are not a mistake, that we did not come from mud, but that we have a divine designer who created us perfectly. And it leads us, all truth leads us to glorify God. And so as we walk through this list, we should meditate on not only what is found in God's word, but we're told to think on all things that are true and good and honorable. But the second part of this passage, verse 9, tells us that thinking is not enough, that we must put these things into practice. That's what Paul says in verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, these virtues that we just discussed, practice these things. To practice means to do something regularly, put your knowledge into action. You know, if you go to law school or med school, You learn a lot of information, but then when you get out, you put that information into practice, and you start practicing law. You start practicing medicine. And Paul says those things that you meditate on, you must put into practice. James 1.22 communicates this when he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so we are not just to meditate on these virtues, but we are to put them into action. And so I want to walk through this list that Paul lays out in verse 8. And I want to see what it means to think and practice these things. So let's start with the first virtue. Think and practice whatever is true. All truth is God's truth. No matter where it is found, all truth is God's truth. Whether it is located in the Bible or in science or in any other realm. All truth is God's truth. And we are in an age or an era where we are exploring and discovering God's truth. You know, we talked about it with the human brain, but I remember in college, one of my friends, his name was Chris. He was in med school. And one day we sat down for lunch and I asked him, Chris, how's it going? He said, Dan, I am just blown away. And I said, why? He said, we have been studying the human foot. And the human foot is such an amazing part of the body. It has all of these tendons, all of these sensors, all of these bones, and all of them perfectly placed. He goes, I don't know how anybody could study the human foot and not believe in God. See, all truth is God's truth, and we discover God's truth. And as we discover God's truth, it leads us into awe and wonder and worship of our Creator. My friend would have never again found these truths in the Bible. But all truth is God's truth. This is good for us to understand. If you are a student and you are studying mathematics or psychology or science or history or languages, as you discover the beauty and the mystery and the joy and the grandeur of truth, let it lead you to worship a creative and beautiful and wonderful, and glorious God. We should seek truth, meditate on truth, and worship the author of truth. Secondly, we should think and practice whatever is honorable. We, as a church, should acknowledge those things in society that are noble, that are good, that are honorable. Those things that evoke respect, and dignity, and reverence. Whatever is honorable, we should cultivate In in society. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, just earlier, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church. Epaphroditus is a servant of Christ who nearly gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says to the Philippians, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Christians are to honor those who are worthy of honor both inside the church and outside the church. In Romans chapter 13, when Paul is talking to submitting to the government, in which he's talking about submitting to the Roman government, which is persecuting Christians. He says this, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You know, when I think of honor in our society, I think of those who give of themselves sacrificially. I think of those in the military. I think of veterans. I think of those who died in battle. I also think of their families who have sacrificed so much to let mom or dad or brother or sister to go. It is right for us to honor our military as Christ's church. As a matter of fact, it's wrong for us not to. Because it is an honorable thing. Furthermore, we should honor other public servants like those that serving fire and rescues, or teachers, or coaches, or missionaries, or moms and dads, those that give of themselves sacrificially. We are called to honor those who are worthy of honor. And not only should we honor them, but we should be men and women of honor. Men and women who are willing to give of ourselves for noble things, even to the point of death. And so Paul says, think on these things. Honor those who deserve honor. Next, he says, think and practice whatever is just. Throughout the Old Testament, we are told that our God is a God of justice. Psalm 37 simply says, turn away from evil and do good, for the Lord loves justice. Deuteronomy 10 says, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, He, he the great The mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God delights in bringing justice to those who have been marginalized by society. Those who have no voice, the fatherless, the sojourner. He loves enacting justice on their behalf. And because we are the people of God, because we are creating God's image, we should love justice as our God loves justice. You might remember, if you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda, there's a part where this American news source has come to Rwanda to take video footage and to report on the genocide that's going on in Rwanda. And Paul, the main character, says to Jack, the cameraman, he says, I am glad that you have shot this footage and that the world will see it. It is the only way we have a chance that people might intervene. Jack, the cameraman, responds saying, Yeah, and if no one intervenes, is it still a good thing to show? Paul responds, How can they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? And then Jack, the cameraman, reports. He says, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh, my God, that's horrible. And then go on eating their dinner. We're not only to meditate and to think on justice and the injustice that is happening in this world. But we are called to do something about it. And so what does that look like in your life? Well, if you're a student and you see someone getting bullied at your school, that means going to the proper authorities to report it, even though it might cost you your reputation, even though it might cost you friends. It's taking a step of faith for justice. Or maybe you're an employee of a big corporation and you witness sexism or racism. It's going through the proper channels to report these things or to address them one-on-one with people. And yes, it might even cost you your job, but we are called to stick our necks out for justice for those who are marginalized by society. Or maybe just as a living, living human being that is alive and breathing, maybe justice means to stick up for those who have no voice at all, to stick up for the millions of babies a year that are being killed. To stick up for them, to not be silent, but to go to God in prayer. To fight for justice by supporting groups that that support the unborn. To support justice, maybe even by taking on a teenage girl that is pregnant and loving her and carrying her and walking her through the process. Or maybe justice might mean being with a woman who has had an abortion and is suffering the effects of it and loving her unconditionally with the love of God. We're called to enact justice all around us, even on a global scale. There's been much attention brought to human trafficking, and we have many opportunities to do that. There's a great mission organization called International Justice Mission, which rescues women out of the human trafficking industry. We have a great opportunity to support that. Even today, in today's bulletin, you'll see there's an opportunity. There's a jewelry party over at New Hope that that we've been invited to. I probably won't go, but maybe the women would like to go and the proceeds to that help support women that are coming out of human trafficking. And so we have opportunities to consider justice, but also practice justice as agents of God's justice. Because he loves justice and he loves working out justice for those who have been marginalized. Next, he says, think and practice whatever is pure. To think on what is pure is to think on those things that are not contaminated, not polluted. Things that are clean. You know, it's amazing to me because I think still one of the biggest gimmicks ever is bottled water. <laughs> purified bottled water. I mean, I know it's it's handy, it's reliable, but I'm like, why didn't I think of that? You know, just run my faucet through a coffee filter, bottle it, and call it purified water and make millions of dollars. That's what they do, right? But, but we drink bottled water because we want the purest water. We want the impurities taken out. And if that's how we would treat our physical bodies, which perish, why would we not treat our souls the same, which live forever? Why would we not filter out the impurities and think on what is pure? That our minds would be set on those things. That they would be transformed by what is good and lovely and pure. He continues, he says, think and practice whatever is lovely and commendable. These two words don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. As I mentioned earlier, these are taken as virtues from the Greek culture, but they are certainly in line with Scripture. And so to think and practice whatever lovely means to think on things that are pleasing or agreeable, things that cause us to love others. In addition, to think and practice whatever is commendable, he says, which means to think on things that are well reputed by society. And so what does this look like in our life? And this kind of, this is how I have applied this, this passage to my own life and am continuing to hopefully apply this passage to my life. As many of you know, I enjoy country music. Um, old, new, whatever, just give me some twang, I'm happy, right? Sing about a pickup truck, a dog, it's going to be good for me. And as I listen to country music, there are some songs that are really good, that are very lovely, that are very commendable. For example, there's one song called The Good Stuff. Some of you may have heard of it, but it's a story about a guy who's newly married. He and his wife get in his first big fight, and so he drives around looking for the local bar. He finally pulls up to a bar, and he asks the bartender for some good stuff. And the bartender turns to him. And he said, you can't find that here. He said, the good stuff is the way your wife looks when there's rice in her hair. It's eating burnt suppers the whole first year and asking for seconds to keep her from tearing up. The good stuff is holding your baby tight. The good stuff is having a t-shirt that's saying, I'm a grandpa. The good stuff is being right there as your time gets small and the good Lord calls her home. The good stuff is when you go home And she'll start to cry and she'll say, I'm sorry. And so will you. And then you look into each other's eyes and you forgive one another and you love one another. That's the good stuff. You see, this isn't a Christian song. It's not even something that would be found in scripture necessarily. But it is lovely and it is commendable. And it leads me to loving my wife more. Contrastingly, there are other country songs. There is a country song that came out this summer, and the title of the song is I'm Drunk on a Plane. I'm Drunk on a Plane. How many of you have heard this song, I'm Drunk on a Plane? You can be honest. It's a catchy song, isn't it? Like, it's a really good song. But it's not what is lovely and commendable to God. It is a song that promotes medication through alcohol. It's a song that promotes erotic encounters with strangers. It's a song that promotes bitterness and rage as a right response. It is not something that helps me love my wife more. It's not something that is pure and lovely. And so here's my application. I've listened on Pandora. I'm guessing some of you know what that is. Some of you don't. But there's a great opportunity on on this system, Pandora, to simply put a thumbs down on these songs that, Don't help me dwell on what is pure and what is lovely. Because it will never play it again. And to keep the songs that help me dwell on what is pure and lovely and commendable. I'm not saying that we need to throw out all of our non-Christian music. But we probably need to throw out some of it. We don't need to throw away all of the songs we've purchased on iTunes. But we might need to throw away some. You know, I know even for some of you, you said, you know, there's this this band from the 80s and I just can't listen to it because when it takes me back there, it takes me to this drug induced state. And I just don't want to go there. For some of you, you have to you probably have to get rid of songs that wouldn't bother me and vice versa. But we're called to take a stand because there is a battle for our brain. There is a battle for our mind. There's a battle for our thoughts in which we must meditate and think on that which is pure and lovely and commendable. You know, I think we are so careful to not be legalistic that so many times we refuse to set healthy boundaries. As I said, there is a battle for our thought life. And Christ commands us to meditate on whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is commendable. Paul ends, finally, he says, think and practice Whatever is excellent and worthy of praise. This is kind of a catch all into all of creation and all of society. Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think about those things. And so let's switch the mediums because these are the ways that we receive information. Let's think about what we look at on TV or movies or websites when we engage with those things, when we decide what we're going to watch, what we're going to look at, is our question simply, what will entertain me? Or is our question, would God deem this excellent and worthy of praise? I think we underrate so much how influential TV is in America. The Nielsen Company says the average American watches more than four hours of TV a day. That would be about three hours and 55 minutes more than they talk to their parents, probably. TV is extremely influential. Statistics show that a child, by the time that they finish elementary school, will see about 8,000 murders, which communicates something about the sanctity of human life. Now, there are some shows that that fight for justice that shows this as wrong, but others that, that show killing people is just not a big deal. One study showed that during the family hour, the time slot with the largest audience among young viewers. It contained a higher frequency of adultery as opposed to references to marital intimacy. Fox Broadcasting, which is the conservative channel, people think, had only one reference to marital intimacy in 24 hours, but it had 23 references to adultery. And my guess is most of them were glorified and exalted as something good and wonderful. What TV does not tell you is the destruction that adultery brings. It doesn't tell you how it doubles the rate of suicide in young children. It doesn't tell you that 70% of inmates come from broken homes. George Barna says they says there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. There is also evidence that may, many young people are moving towards embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. Find media that promotes the beauty and glory, and joy of fidelity. Find something that is praiseworthy. Filter out those things that fill your mind with garbage. Like I said, you don't have to throw away everything, but you probably do need to throw away something. And it will probably be something you really enjoy too. But it is something that takes your mind, that captivates your minds in ways that are not lovely, are not holy, and are not pure. I want to summarize this passage with a visual illustration. And my, my visual uh, graphic skills are about as good as my singing, which you've heard before. And so this is kind of a summary of this passage in visual form. But you see all of these spheres in life. You see media, politics and government, business, art, entertainment, education. and In the middle, you see this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And we can take these things from all the spheres of life that we have and take out of them whatever is true, whatever is good, and delight in them and rejoice in them. James, my, my, excuse me, James Montgomery Boyce says, The things that are acknowledged to be honorable— by the best people everywhere, are also worthy to be cultivated by Christians. Consequently, Christians can love all that is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, wherever they find it. They can rejoice in the best of art and good literature. They can thrill to great music. They can thrive on beautiful architecture. They should do it. You should do it. Christians can thank God for giving us the ability, even in our fallen state, to create such things of beauty. We are called to engage with the culture, to look into the culture, to see what is right and beautiful and good, and to honor it, and to enjoy it, and to celebrate it. So let me end with this question. Why should we go through this labor? Why should we train our brain? Why should we cast out those things That are not good for us to think about. What is our motivation to change the channel when something filthy comes on TV? What is our motivation to set down that book or magazine that floods us with untruths or with gossip or with greed? What is our motivation to say no to friends when they ask us to do something dishonorable? Well, the answer comes in verse 9. He says, whatever you learned and received and heard and seen in me, these these virtues to think and meditate on, practice these things. And then here it is. And the God of peace will be with you. This is our reward. This is our reward for focusing our thinking on things that are good and lovely and true. Verse 7, you may remember, Paul made this promise. He said, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. That when you're filled with anxiety and you cry out to God, you pray to God and you rejoice in God, that the peace of God will be with you and will guard you. But now Paul takes it to a whole new level. Not only does he say that the peace of God will be with you, but he says the God of peace will be with you. That the God of peace, the God of peace, of the universe will be with you in the midst of dwelling on these things that are good and right and holy and so what does this mean does this mean that if our mind is in the gutter if we think of things that we shouldn't think about that god is going to abandon us does it mean that god leaves us that he forsakes us well we know that's not true because the rest of scripture tells us that that's not true so what does it mean that the God of peace is with you when you think about these things, when you practice these things? You see, entertaining filthy thoughts and practices does not break your union with Christ. Nothing can break your union with Christ, but it does distance your communion with Christ. It doesn't break your union with Christ, but it distances your communion with Christ. It's the same as true in a marriage relationship. For example, yesterday... I was watching the SEC championship game in which the Missouri Tigers, my, my alma mater, was playing. And midway through the first half, our best player was ejected for targeting, which means aiming for the quarterback's head, okay? Well, they showed this replay, and I looked at the replay, and I was like, he shouldn't have been ejected. Why is he ejected? I don't get it. Well, then the commentator gets on, and he's just laboring on and on and on about how it was such an easy call to make, how he targeted him, and he should be ejected. And I was getting more and more frustrated. So finally, I just said to the TV, please stop talking. I wasn't thinking about whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And so what my wife, Trisha decides to confront me on my attitude. You can guess how I responded. Not pure or lovely or commendable at all. And in that time where there's that frustration, even though this is kind of a micro scale thing, our union's not broken. We're still married, but our communion dissolves a little bit. There's a little bit of friction. There's a little bit of a barrier between her and I. We're still united. We're still married, but there's this distancing that goes on. The same is true in our relationship with God. When we think about things that are ungodly, we can't break our union with Christ, but it distances our communion with God. You may be here and you may be saying, you know what? I feel so far away from God. Could it be because. You've been meditating on things that you should not meditate on. That your mind has been captivated by things that draw you away from God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so why should we turn the channel? Why should we get rid of that thing that makes us think filthy things? Because we want to see God more. Because we want a greater joy. Because we want to enjoy the intimacy with God of the universe. That is our reason. That is our motivation. That we might draw clear, near to God. You know, you might be here, and all this might be new information, might be uh, even a little bit strange. But you might also say, I've never had intimacy with God. You know, the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas. And he lived the perfect life. 70,000 thoughts a day, perfect But then he went to the cross. And at the cross, we see the culmination, the greatest display of what is honorable, of justice, of purity, of loveliness, of excellence, of what is worthy of praise. And so as you come today... And as we come to the Lord's table, it is a reminder for us to sit and look to the cross. Remember that Christ has paid the price for all of our dirty thoughts, for all of our mean thoughts, for all of our angry thoughts, for all of our selfish thoughts. He has paid the price for them all. That we can have the mind of Christ. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, this is a great opportunity to trust in him as your Savior. To repent to him, to say, Lord, forgive me for my sinful thoughts. And they trust that he paid the price for it in full. If you're here today and you do know Christ, it's a great opportunity as as communion is being distributed to take and meditate on your thought life and to consider what thoughts you are entertaining that is drawing you away from God. To repent of that and to commit to transforming those thoughts, to be having a renewed mind that glories in. And enjoys God. It's time to think about our thought life. Think about whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable. It's time to think about anything that is excellent. And anything worthy of praise. Because the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we're reminded by your word that we don't deserve it. We're reminded that you give grace to sinful people. We're reminded that even in our sin, you thought of us. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful for that, God. Lord, as we take these elements Remind us, God, of the beauty of the cross, of your love for people like us. Lord, it is simply amazing that you would know all of our thoughts, all 70,000 a day, 365 days a year. And you would still send your son, Jesus, for us. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.